This morning in our passage, we have a series of escalating events. And we find out that uh, David's kindness from chapter 9 continues into chapter 10. This morning, we are going to seek to connect the dots in our narrative in order to get a clear picture of what is really taking place. I imagine most of you have at one time done one of those dot-to-dot pictures. You know what I'm talking about, where there's, there's dots and uh, they form an outline and you can't really see the picture. Uh, if it's a good enough dot-to-dot, you don't see the picture until all the dots are connected. Well, that's the way life often is. A series of dots that seemingly don't make a lot of sense in and of themselves, but taken together, you see the whole picture. Well, in a dot-to-dot picture, there is a guide, there is an assistance for you, and that is there's numbers, right? And there's a number by a dot, and so you, you follow the numbers and connect the dots, and it all takes place. A picture is revealed, it becomes much more clear. In our passage, there are no numbers. Nothing that, no specific numbers that connect the dots. However, there is a literary device that helps us to connect the dots in chapter 10. And I often say to you that when we read a passage, one of the things you always want to be on the lookout for are repeated words, phrases. They take on a tremendous significance. The habitual repetition. And so I would like to connect the dots by looking at this repetitive form that's given to us in 2 Samuel chapter 10. And that repetitive literary form is the phrase, and when so-and-so saw that. When so-and-so saw that. If you're a person who likes to mark your Bible, I would point out verse 6. When the Ammonites saw that, they had become a stench to David. Verse 9. When Joab saw that, the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear. Verse 14. And when the Ammonites saw that, the Assyrians fled. Verse 15, but when the Syrians saw that, they had been defeated by Israel. Verse 19, and when all the kings who were servants of Hadazazar saw that, they had been defeated by Israel. And they saw that, and they saw that, and they saw that, and they saw that. So this morning, I want us to consider what is the picture that we are to see in 2 Samuel chapter 10? What is it revealing to us? What is the great takeaway? What do we want to be sure that we don't miss as a result of connecting these dots? To answer that question, we have to begin by connecting the dots, to start drawing the lines. So the first dot is found in verse 6. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David. So we have to ask our question, how did the Ammonites come to see that they had become odious to David? Well, David had performed an act of kindness for the Ammonite king, verse 1. After the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan his son 
reign in his place. David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. Now, the first thing I want to look at is that word loyal. I will deal loyally with Nathan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. The other translations use the word kindness. NAS, I will show kindness to Hanan. NIV, I will show kindness to Hanan. King James, I will show kindness to Hanan. The Hebrew word in verse 1 is the same Hebrew word that's found in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, where it says, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I might show kindness for Jonathan's sake? This is the word that is most often translated as kindness. It can be translated as loyal, for loyal is one aspect of kindness. But kindness is much broader. And it is a word that is, I think, most helpful because it is showing us that David had uh, reigned, verse 15 of chapter 8, said David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. So we're looking at David's reign, we're looking at his kingdom, and how it personifies justice and equity. How David is seeking to do the right thing in the administration of his office. And so chapter 9 reveals to us David's kindness to his people, including Mephibosheth and the descendants of Saul. Chapter 10 is David's kindness in dealing with the nations round about him. So we need to understand David's kindness and what he is intending to do as he reaches out to the nations around him. So, David, in his kindness, verse 2, I will show kindness to Hanan, son of Hanan, just as his father showed kindness to me. So, David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanan concerning his father when David's men came to the land of the Ammonites. So, David reaches out, and he wants to show support and comfort in the time of this man's death of his father. We do not know in what way Hanan had shown kindness towards David. The scriptures do not provide us with that specific example. Some commentators speculate that it may be during the time that David was fleeing from Saul and experienced protection in some way. Again, we really don't know. But the point is how the Ammonites respond to David's kindness. That is, the rulers of the Ammonites failed to see David's act of kindness. Verse 3. But, but, here's the contrast. David's kind, but the princes of the Ammonites said to David, uh, said to Hanan, their Lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he's honoring your father? <laughs> They're saying, do you buy this? You really think that David sent these people here to comfort you and to show you kindness? How naive can you be? You're going to buy that, guys? Instead, they see David's actions as an act of aggression. Notice the end of verse 3. Has not David sent his servants to you to search this city and to spy it out and overthrow it? No, David isn't extending an act of kindness to you. David is manipulating you. David is pulling the wool over your eyes. 
He sent people here to spy out the city, to see what our weaknesses are. This is to prepare him for battle and for war. That's their response. So they see it as an act of aggression. So they respond to David's act of kindness with an act of harshness. They humiliate David's servants, verse 4. So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. Nice way of saying they exposed their genitals. I mean, they really humiliated these guys. They couldn't have treated them much worse. David responds in kindness to his servants and spares them public humiliation, verse 5. When it was told David, he sent, uh, he sent to meet them, uh, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. So, saves them public humiliation. Wait till your beards grow, etc. You come back. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the Ammonites come to see or understand that David thinks what they had done stinks. David thinks it stinks. Verse 6. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, when they saw that, when they realized that, when they understood that. Now I want to pause for a moment and ask the question, why didn't they see that originally? Why didn't they understand when they cut off half of this, their beards and they humiliated by cutting their garments at their hips? Why didn't they think that that probably is not going to be well received by David? That probably is not the best way to make peace with a, a neighboring nation. That might have some negative consequences. They didn't see it in the beginning, but now they see it. And so it says, when the Ammonites saw they had become a stench to David, they are at a turning point. In each one of these dots, there's a turning point. They have to make a decision based on what they see and what they know. They become odious to David. So what are they going to do? Are they going to reach out in peace? Are they going to make amends? Are they going to apologize? Are they going to say, David, we never should have done that. We were wrong. Or are they going to double down and make things worse? Well, the answer is they're going to double down and they're going to make things worse. They made an assessment. They uh, decide that uh, they are going to go to battle against David. And they make an assessment, and they realize they're not able to stand against the army of the Israelites if there was a battle. Having made that assessment, once again, they do not seek to make peace. Instead, they hire mercenaries from the other nations to come to the battle and fight alongside them, which is verse 6. And when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to the Ammonites, what do they do? The Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Bethrob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Miaka with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. So they assemble an army, paid people to come and fight against David. So how does David respond? Well, he recognizes the hiring of the mercenaries as an act of aggression, which it was. 
And so in verse 7, when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men. Verse 8, the Ammonites came out and drew up battle array in the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians was open, Rehob and the men of Tob and Meachah were by themselves in the open, open country. <coughs> Second dot. <coughs> the story advances with verse 9. When Joab saw that, the battle was set both in front and in rear. Again, a moment of decision. Something's got to be done. <coughs> Well, Joab responds with a wise military decision. Verse 9, when Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel, arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of the men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. So he divides up his army into two groups to fight the two different offenses. Joab then reveals his battle strategy. Verse 11, he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come down and help you. So we'll help each other. Whoever needs help, we'll send troops. Joab realizes that the outcome is in the Lord's hands. Verse 12, be of good courage. Let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Now, may the Lord do what good seems good to him. Most of the commentators take this as a positive statement on the part of Joab. Joab is not a very godly individual, and we'll see that in the days and weeks to come. So this, in some ways, is kind of out of keeping for Joab. Other ways, it's not. But anyway, it's usually taken as a very positive way in which we ought to view life. That is, we should trust in the Lord, but never presume upon him which has a great deal of truth associated with it at its core. However, in this particular instance, is that all that could be said of God? Is all that could be known? We'll just have to see what, what God's going to do. It's in the Lord's hands. It's true it's in the Lord's hands. But... Was there no way of knowing the outcome? Was there no way of knowing what God's will was? Was there anything to hang their hat upon? Was God's will really in doubt? Well, let's connect some more dots. But in order to do that, we've got to go all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. You may want to turn with me to these dots, or you may just want to listen. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is... God's promise to David, sent by Nathan, when David had wanted to build a house, temple for the Lord. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great nation, name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may dwell in their own places and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. 
I'm going to give you a rest over all your enemies. I'm going to give you peace. Then in the ensuing chapters, we see God at work fulfilling his promise of securing his people in the land and ultimately giving them rest from all the enemies. So in chapter 8, we have this long list of military victories with a line that is drawn from God's promise to these victories. Notice verse 1 of chapter 8. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methane, Alma, out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab and he measured them. What's the after this? Chapter 8. What's the after this? It's chapter 7 and the promise that God gave to David. I'm going to subdue your enemies. I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to give you security in the land. Then we have the next dot, which creates a direct line from God's promise and the after this, to the statement in verse 6 of chapter 8. We looked at these already, but now I'm just reminding you. I'm connecting the dots, drawing the lines. Look at the end of verse 6. Summation. And the Lord gave victory to David. What is the next statement? Wherever he went. Wherever he went. Look at verse 14 of chapter 6. Again, this long narration of events. What's the outcome? Verse 14, last statement. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Wherever he went. That's the recurring theme. Wherever he went. Battle after battle. 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 God was giving David victory. God was giving David victory. God was giving David victory in keeping with his promise, in keeping with what he said. Then we have a direct line from the military victories on chapter 8 and the king's kindness shown to Mishibosheth with the events of chapter 10. And verse 1, after this, the king of the Ammonites died. Dot, 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 dot. So what we find out is Joab didn't connect the dots. Joab didn't see the picture. Joab didn't understand the promise and didn't get that God was giving Israel a victory wherever David went. Now, to be fair, he didn't have the scriptures that we have. He had to see it. But it's pointed out for us, so we don't miss it. And that's the reality of life. Unfortunately, our lives don't have dots all around them with numbers or even literary devices to help us to, to see what God is doing. And reality is, oftentimes we miss it. Just as Joab misses it here. This battle was never in doubt. This will of God was never in question. They were going to win. They were going to win because God had promised it to be so. But if you don't connect the dots, 
Life seems like a lot of isolated events. They oftentimes don't seem connected to each other. It, life can seem very random. When in reality, there's a master plan. That God has a purpose, that he is working out. That he has a, a will that he's achieving. That he has an end in view. This was one battle among many in which God was working out a promise to bring peace and security to David over all his enemies. It's important that we don't miss the bigger picture in life. Otherwise, isolated events can take on a meaning all their own. We fail to see the overall grace and the goodness of God. Life doesn't seem to make much sense. But when you connect the dots, you come to recognize that God has a wonderful master plan. You see the bigger picture. We know the promise, and I believe that everyone here this morning is trusting in it. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Amen? Amen. Amen. All things work together to good. All the events are overseen by God to accomplish his purpose. All things work together for good. Every event in my life is a dot. Not an isolated dot. A dot which connects to other events in my life and yours. And together, they accomplish God's purpose and God's will. And it's a beautiful picture. So the story moves on. As we see the outworking of the plan, verse 13, so Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians and they fled before them. So what happens next? Well, the Syrians give up the fight, verse 13. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians and they fled before them. Next dot, next event, next turning road. Verse 14, and when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, remember the Ammonites hired the Syrians to fight alongside them because the Ammonites weren't strong enough to take on the Israelites by themselves. So when they saw that the Syrians fled, crossroad, what do they do? What action do they take? How are they going to respond to that? Well, verse 14. Once again, it's a decision time. Are they going to make peace or are they going to continue to fight? They make the wise decision and run for their lives. Verse 14, and when the Ammonites saw that Syrians had fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Well, that's smart. But what does Joab do? Verse 14. When the Ammonites saw the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. What? Now, I submit to you that's surprising. I ask you the question, was that a mistake? 
When they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city, verse 14, then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. Was that a mistake? Was that going to be the end of things? We know in chapters 11 and 12 that these Ammonites are coming back again. Here was, here was the opportunity to deal with them once and for all. And this is going to go on for chapters 11 and 12. Wasn't that a huge military mistake? <laughs> why in the world, why in the world wouldn't Joab have pursued them and conquered them? No, it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a mistake at all. Go back with me to verse 3. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan and their, their lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your, your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? That wasn't David's intent. David's intent was not to overthrow that city. They didn't believe it. But you and I can believe it. Because David didn't overthrow the city. Joab's men returned. Or it was his intention to show kindness. It was intention to deal with them differently. And even though they were fighting against David, when they backed off, David backed off. The next dot in the picture, verse 15, but, now conversely, but, 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 but. Okay, things are not going the way you'd expect. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, what do they do? See, it's another point of decision. It's, a, it's another fork in the road. What are the Syrians going to do when they saw that they had been defeated by Israel? The Ammonites, they hightail it. What do the Syrians do? Verse 15, they gathered themselves together. Rather than making a peace treaty with David, they're going to go on fighting. They decide to come back with a bigger and stronger army. Verse 16, and had Razar sent and brought out the Assyrians who were beyond the Euphrates, they came to Helam and showed back the commander of the army had Razar at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan, came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. Outcome, verse 18, not surprising. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed the Syrians, the men of 700 chariots, 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. Wasn't a wise move. They provoked. They were defeated. The next dot in the picture, verse 19. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadrian saw that they had been defeated by Israel. So when they get the bigger picture and they take assessment, 
And they take a deep breath, and they realize they've been defeated once again. What are they going to do? Moment of decision. Fork in the road. How are they going to respond to this defeat? Answer? Verse 19, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. They made peace with Israel. The Syrians learn a partial lesson. A partial lesson. Because they're not totally off the scene. But for now. But for now. But for now. They're making peace. So what's the big picture for us? What, what are we really supposed to get from this, this passage? Well, I would submit to you there are a number of things. First, and obvious, you can't win when you're fighting against the Lord. Don't try it. Give up. Give in. Do the will of God in your life. It doesn't turn out well when someone is fighting against the Lord. But for the people of God, for you and me, and, you know, I, I sometimes wish that I had two hours to preach because I'd like to make the applications as it relates to Israel itself and connect some more dots. And they are intriguing in chapters 11 and 12. And as I work through that, I'll, I'll connect some of them. In fact, this morning I almost but I realized I wouldn't have near the amount of time. But what I'm saying is there, there are some really significant things in Israel's history that God is doing. But we're not Israelites, and we don't live then, and so you know, there's a tendency not to be all that excited about those things, and simply to say, well, what's the takeaway for us? What does this mean for us 4,000 years later? Well, for the people of God, Look beyond the now and the individual events that are taking place in your life. Try to look at the bigger picture. Not just today, but yesterday and tomorrow. Not just this one event. But try to see your response to this event and the consequences, the outcomes. Where is this going to lead? You know, it's surprising to me that the Ammonites didn't stop and think when they cut off half of these guys' beard and, and their garments at their waist, that they didn't say, what's going to come of that? How, how, how's that going to work out? How's that going to be to our benefit? How's that going to advance our cause? No, no. It wasn't until they had done it and seen the consequences that all of a sudden they said, oh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Think. Think about the consequences of your decisions. Think about your reactions. And don't view life as these isolated events. But try to see the forks in the road 
the decisions we make, the different paths that we can take, how they are likely to turn out, and the consequences for us and others. So try to think about that. And as you think about that, I would commend to you two different perspectives. The first, those of us of an older age, those of us whose life is primarily behind us, with a little bit of it ahead of us, take time to just reflect. Just take time to think about the major events in your life and the things you were worried about and the things you were concerned about and the decisions you made. And just connect some of the dots. Just look back at your life and see how God has used individuals, how God used trials and circumstances, how God brought you through disease or, or financial difficulties or whatever the case may be, and, and just see in your life how God has been working all things out for your good. Connect the dots. Give praise to the Lord. Acknowledge his goodness and the faithfulness to his promises. If you're younger, it's a greater challenge. You have much less to look behind and much more to look before. You're more in the situation of Joab. In the midst of the battle. So what's the challenge to you? Connect the promises of God to your present situation. Draw a line from the scriptures of what God said he will do for you. How God said he will help you. How God said he will never leave you nor forsake you when you feel forsaken. When you feel as though you're heading nowhere. Don't just look at the isolated situation, but look at the scriptures and connect your life to the promises of God. That particular situation that you're now in. What does God have to say about it? Connect the dots. We learn a lesson about faith. God is at work in the good times and the bad. These individual battles, not by David's aggression, but by that of the enemy's aggression, is actually advancing the kingdom of God. David was experiencing the peace and the security that God had promised him. But in a very unusual way. David's act of kindness, though met with harshness and rejection, had not failed. David's act of kindness was in keeping with what God wanted for David to do. David's act of kindness was in keeping with 
this kingdom of equity and justice. David did right. Even though it was treated with harshness. To do right is always right. To do what God has called us to do is always the right thing to do. And what we fail to see so often is that even when it doesn't seem like it works out right, even when it seems like it isn't paid off, even when somebody comes back with their beard half shaved and, and their clothes ripped off in the middle, when you do what's right, you're advancing the kingdom. You're advancing the kingdom. You're making this world the way in which God intends this world to be. You're acting with equity and you're acting with justice. You're acting with goodness. It's God's accomplishing his purpose and fulfilling his promises. Showing kindness may not always be understood or appreciated, but no matter what, it's the right thing to do. And the biggest takeaway, I think, is God is at work today in building his kingdom. God is building his kingdom. Even as he was building his kingdom in the Old Testament, God is building his kingdom. Jesus is returning. And right now, it may be very difficult to connect the dots. World events, situations, my decisions, politics, all these different things, all these dots that are so, so beyond us to get the big picture. Life seems so random, so unfair, so chaotic. You can lose sight of the fact that God is in control. You can lose sight of the fact that God is sovereign. You can lose sight of the fact that God is directing these events that you are experiencing in your life. The eye of faith longs for the day in which all this will be made plain. We just long for the time in which we understand why. Why? Why? Why does God allow this to happen? Why is God bringing me into the situation? Why am I experiencing this? Why is my goodness being retaliated against? Why don't people understand? Why don't I get support? Why, why, why? The dots are beyond, beyond us. But they are in God's control. And the longer you live, the more the dots will be connected. But as long as you live, you'll never connect them all. You'll never understand everything that God is doing. You will never get the complete picture. And we have this wonderful promise in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, which simply says this, for now we see in a mirror dimly. <laughs> now we see in a mirror dimly. We look into a mirror and it's fuzzy. You know, it's like a mirror in the morning that, that steamed over. 
you know, with bathroom steam, and you got to wipe it, you know. Right now, we look in this mirror, and it's full of steam. <laughs> and it's awful hard to see what God is doing. For now, we see the mirror dar darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. One day, Christ is going to return. And when he does, we will get it. We will get it. We will understand. Not only that God had a plan, we will see it. And we'll know what God was doing in our life. And we will understand how the dots connect. And the response will be to fall before his knees and to thank him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. For he has done all things well. May we live each day in the light of that truth. And simply say, Lord, I don't understand. But I trust you. You're advancing your kingdom. You're keeping your promises. Help me to see more. Open my eyes. That I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. Lord, help me to connect the dots of Scripture to the events of my life more readily. Help me to draw the lines. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you are working us, you are faithful. Your promises are yea and amen, they fail not. And Lord, so many times we are like a Joab who experience and, and, and manifest a trust, but yet fail to see the bigger picture and so many times miss out then on the peace and the comfort that is to be ours. We follow you with a measure of uncertainty when there should be a greater measure of certainty, although, Lord, there are certainly so many things we can't understand. But increase our faith. Help us as we read the scriptures to make the bridges between the words on the page to the events of not only our life, but our world, the nations. Lord, keep ever before us that, that promise that we know so, so well that all things work together for good to them that love God. I pray that even today, you would encourage our hearts as we reflect back on our life and acknowledge, God, you've been so good to us. The things that we feared, the things that we were afraid of, and how you redeemed them, how you provided, how you have helped, how, how you have led us in the past. And give us assurance that you will lead us in the future. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.